Today's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 9. The people of Israel confess their sins. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of their Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for your hunger, for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock of their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God whom you brought up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them 
and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and, heard, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the prophets of the lands, of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their, king, in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. 
Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is God's word. Good morning, Calvary. Before I start with the sermon this morning, I just want to take a minute and to thank you for filling out the survey that Pastor Gerald and Pastor John put together. And we are processing that information you provided in response to the survey. And the purpose of the survey was to get an idea how uh, you're doing through the season and how to best shepherd and care for you. So we're hoping to get in contact with you uh, to address some of the responses that you provide us with in the next few weeks. So I just want to thank you. And today is the last Sunday of our Missions-Minded Month. And our focus through the different mission-minded efforts is to make Jesus Christ known in Oak Park and around the world. And therefore, that involves you, involves me, involves each believer around the world. And during the past couple of weeks, you have heard from Pastor Gerald, Eric, Pastor Halav last week, about the different elements that Micah 6a described to us and the connection we're making to this month's theme, the markers of the global church. But also how our local church here at Calvary should respond in regards to justice, love mercy, and closing this series, humility, that will be the last marker from the series that we'll be exploring today. And humility should be the crucial and crucial in our individual Christian lives and as a distinct mark in the church's life and the places around the world where we exist or we're planted as a church. The opposite of humility is pride and its different manifestations. And this morning, the question is not if we struggle with pride and rather where and how people see us in our workplaces, our families, our schools, neighborhoods, neighborhoods, and if they perceive us as humble or meek. Pride is not a Christian virtue. As you know, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it can be done of the many roadblocks for the gospel. The gospel, when it's not lived out of, out of and presented with humility and love, is as if the messenger becomes disconnected from the message, and the message becomes something that lacks grace and love. Not because the message itself, but because of the one who is presenting the message. When we think or try to define humility, our worldly, broken, and natural tendencies to do it based in our human constructs. Therefore, the concept becomes something unpopular and unwanted, away from the biblical description of humility. In her novel, Isaac and His Devils, a very interesting title for that novel, Fernanda Evernstein defined it in a similar way when she says that humility has a dank and shameful smell to the worldly, the essence of failure, loneliness, and obscurity. It was pride what led the world into what is today when Adam and Eve seen back in Aden, wanting to pursue their kingdom and the idea that they knew better than God. Pride can be easily identified through the narrative of the Old Testament, but in doing that, we can miss the different manifestations of humility that are also evident and present in his narrative. Famous theologian uh, Jay Cummings writes about it when he says that it can be easy to overlook the expressions of humility of God in the Old Testament. But the incarnation of the Son of God demands that we relook at the Old Testament narratives. But what does humility have to do with the healing and the restoration of the world, this, the 
series that we've been going through this year in our church, but also its role in the Lord's mission. What is humility and what are the implications for us believers today? This is the question that we'll be exploring this morning with the premise that God is a humble God. And we can see that as we continue in the journey of God's people through exile and captivity. And to begin this morning, please allow me to have a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you with humility. Confessing our need for you, Father. Acknowledging, Lord, that um, this year has a has been a very interesting, difficult year, Lord. But I do believe that you have used this year to grow us as a church, individually, Lord. And as we come, Lord, um, this morning before you, I ask that you will open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that this message will find a place, room in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray for guidance, direction, for wisdom, Lord. I pray that you will lead me this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And before I dive into this morning's passage, the passage that it was read to us from Nehemiah chapter 9, it is important to mention that Ezra and Nehemiah's book need to be observed as one accounted narrative. Starting with Ezra, we are acquainted with Jeremiah's prophecy and the return of the Jews out of Babylon from captivity at the end of 70 years. And this is to rebuild the temple. And is followed by Nehemiah's account to encourage the Jews who had returned from exile but still in captivity to rebuild the walls. And how our sovereign God was moving forward with his redemption plan using human agents to fulfill his redemptive and restorative purpose. Nehemiah with the Persian king commission arrives to rebuild the walls of the city and like Ezra experiences opposition. Once they rebuild the walls, the time to rebuild the community also comes, followed by the reading of the law. The Feast of Booths is celebrated also. And as far as this celebration, I want to mention that it was a reminder of their lives in the wilderness after they were freed from Egypt and before entering into the Promised Land. And here you have some exiles have returned. The temple has been rebuilt and the walls have been restored. And gathered around this celebration and the proclamation of the law is how we enter into this morning's message. It is also vital, important to notice that God is not only concerned about the worship place, or the place they live in, he's also deeply concerned with the lives and the hearts of his people. And with this in mind, I would like to make a few observations from Nehemiah chapter 9 concerning humility. The first observation I want to make is that repentance, it's a sign of humility before the Lord. Followed by the world's proclamation in chapter 8 and the celebration described, now the people come together with sackcloth and with earth on their heads, separated from the foreigners in a posture of confession and repentance, the sackcloth was used as a symbol to demonstrate repentance, and the earth on their head symbolized an identification with the death. And the separation mentioned in regard to the foreigners in, verse, in this verse is not physical or permanent, and rather it is a liturgical act of confession. That is the posture that all community had, like one man, when they presented themselves before the Lord in a posture of humility, with a constraining, repentant heart in response to the word of God, previously read and explained to them, as we see that in verse 3. They approached scripture as if God's audible voice was speaking directly to them. Their sins, spiritual deformities, and shortcomings were exposed in the mirror of scripture. 
for six hours, they confess their sins and worship the Lord. Imagine us here at Calvary having a six-hour service. When you read also chapters 8 and through 10, you can get an idea that a revival was taking place. You see that in the way that they approached God, the unity of the community, and the intensity with which they were seeking the face of the Lord. It was a picture of complete surrender and humiliation before God, as there was nothing better than just to be in that moment. It was a moment of beautiful worship. It is also important to notice that this is not only an individual quick prayer of confession, and instead a united community that bounced down before an entire morning, confessing and acknowledging their past and present shortfalls, negligence, sins, theirs and their fathers. They were in the same spirit, confessing their sin and acknowledging their brokenness. We see first in the life of Ezra and Nehemiah, a manifestation of God's humility. As humble leaders, God used them both to pave the way for an entire nation to be led into that moment of repentance. But it started with them and through the narrative of the Old Testament. We have seen many of the key actors that God has called to mission with him doing the same. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses were not perfect men, but we see glimpses of God's humble character in them. We see them being humble and walking with humility before the Lord. On the other hand, the revival that is taking place there was not produced by a man. However, the way that Ezra and Nehemiah humbled themselves before God evoked that revival. A humble and separated heart with an intentional intense search for the person of God should lead us to repentance. Those are foundational elements for a revival and a transformation of the nation and its people. Pride, on the other hand, is a fertile ground where all other sins have been cultivated. It took them 70 years of trials and calamities to get to this moment of national repentance. But it's through the, these circumstances that God, God's word and his promises became real, tangible, and alive. The word and his promises never became so real and tangible that in the moments that they needed it the most, God spoke with audible voice through his word and they believed it and responded to it in faith. The humility that God's people is exhibiting, is exhibiting here is consistent with the scripture. The one needs to receive with humility God's word and act upon with a humble heart as response. Because God is a humble God. And I'm going to be explaining that in a little bit. We observe in this first part of the chapter how they willingly humble themselves before the Lord. And this should get our attention. Because to be fairly honest, it's not something they were in easily inclined towards. It is pride instead what comes naturally in our lives to our own brokenness and sinful nature. Humility doesn't grow naturally in the backyard of our hearts. It's actually pride what spreads like a plague. From an anthropological, biblical perspective, as we observe how God's people responded to him through scripture, we can agree that it's not natural for the regenerated mind of a Christian man and a woman wanting to worship and obey willingly. We're rather inclined to do the opposite to worship other things, to govern ourselves, and operate out of a sense of self-righteousness. And in most cases, it is through the lenses of pride how we observe the world around us, our relationships, and sometimes our approach to Scripture and to God. The detailed description that Nehemiah is making in this chapter is there for a reason. The author wants to let us know that surrendering, humbling ourselves, it is a process. It is not something that we rush into or a check mark in our extensive List to do, and instead is something that becomes as essential and necessary as the water that we drink and the air that we breathe. 
God, in most cases, uses difficult circumstances to humble ourselves. Do the busy and occupied lives that we have can be very easy to spend our entire days without thinking, remembering, and acknowledging God and his good gifts and what he has done for us. Instead, we might find ourselves acting as if everything that we are and we have is our own doing. Pride can blind us to think that everything in our lives is the result of our own doing, self-reliance, independence, and individualism. We all are called to acknowledge God in all our ways. The more that we know God and acknowledge him and intimate with him as he reveals and speaks to us through scripture, he will guide us to grow in full dependence through the power of the spirit. The more that we willingly and joyfully make room in our lives for him, then he will find, we will find ourselves growing in humility before the Lord, confessing our need and dependence for him and living out for his glory. Only God create, can create a humble heart. He will never turn away a humble heart. And this is how the psalmist describes God's response towards a humble heart. He says, The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will never despise. As we continue making Jesus Christ in Oak Park and around the world, and as we continue being participants of God's mission in conjunction with the global church in the healing and the restoration of the world, we have to repent for the pride in our hearts and lives. But what pride am I talking about? The pride of independence and self-reliance, personal glory, the pride of self-acknowledgement and superiority in thinking that the gospel traveled from the West to the rest. The pride to think about ourselves as masters, but not as servants, as teachers, but not as students, for our ethnocentric and triumphalist spirit in missions as Paul Warwick describes it when he says that our Western arrogance can nullify our Christian effectiveness. We need to move from being virtual teachers into our local and global realities and become immersed and in person and humble students. Humility and pride have something in common. They both carry smell. What I mentioned before are just some of the pitfalls of pride that at the moment that we disconnect ourselves from God, and the outward realities of our church families, our communities, and the world, the more that we will be prone to let our hearts become prideful and arrogant. If we will go back to chapter 8, we can read how the people turn into a time of joyful celebration. And in chapter 9, the opposite. We see how they were led into a time of contrition. In our lives as believers, we need both. During Missions Month here at Calvary, we celebrate the goodness of the Lord and what He's doing in the world through our lives and the lives of our missionaries, our partners, and their ministries. But at the same time, we should also lament and feel the pain and terrors of a broken world that keeps on decaying and longing with a loud voice to be restored. If we just take a moment to reflect what has happened this year in our local communities in the world, we might get a little insight into these realities. There is a call for us as Christians in our world today where humility and repentance become the sackcloth that we wear and the ashes in our head. Our call for us is with humility and repentance to become the sackcloth that we wear and the ashes in our heads. Number two, recounting and acknowledging the Lordship of God in his glorious name is a sign of humility. It starts with God and who he says he is. The next section of this chapter is an open letter where God, God's people acknowledges the one seated on the throne. We read that from verses 6 to 31. Humbly before the Lord, they recognized that it was the God, the creator of the universe, who called them through Abraham to be a nation with a purpose, mission, 
to be a blessing to the world, something that they forgot and took lightly. They took it for granted. Out of the pride and arrogance, they walk away from the Lord, turn to idolatry and the pursuit of their own pleasures and desires. They became an end in themselves. But in the midst of that, the Lord remained faithful. Pay attention how the Lord's actions are described in this prayer from verses 6 to 15 and how they're recounting everything that God has done for them. He is the Lord who made heaven and earth. He preserves it all. The God who chose Abraham and gave him a new name and he, and he found his heart faithful and made a covenant with him. He saw Israel's cried in the afflictions in Egypt. He performed signs and wonders to protect them because they knew they were being oppressed and he made a name for himself. He divided the sea so that his people would cross over to dry land, cast their pursuers down. He led them by a pillar of a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night just to guide them. He came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven and made himself known by the laws, laws and rules. He gave them food, water, and a promised land that he swore that they would possess. And the list of verbs to describe God, God's active power and faithfulness continues as they humbly recognize and acknowledge who is who in this divine economy. They're recounting the biblical narrative so that they can remember that God has been an active and present participant in their lives. God was present with them in their midst before the captivity. During exile, and will continue being present because he will never forsake them. In this long but necessary section, we see the lordship of God, who he is and what he has done for his people since the beginning. It's been God since the beginning, the one who set things in motion and the one who holds in his hands every single aspect of their existence. God is the initiator and the fulfiller of his mission. And as Alan Matamoros mentioned a few years ago. And this is something that can be easily forgotten when we focus or worship other things rather than God. In these verses, we see a juxtaposition between who God is and how he acted against people's sinful and prideful responses, who they were, Israel, and the love and the faithfulness of the Lord in the midst of all that. They turned their attention to other things as their object of adoration, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 1. They forgot that they were chosen and planted in this world for a purpose, to bless all nations, to Abraham's offspring, and for God's absolute glory. But when they forgot, he remembered them. When they were unfaithful, he was faithful. When they lacked, God provided. When they were full of pride, God was merciful and loving. Even when they turned away from him, he remained present and faithful. And this is what they're humbly acknowledging as a result of being exposed to God's word. The humility we observe here is consistent with the biblical narrative that humility is the doorway to acknowledge the Lordship of God. The sons of Moses, Hannah, Zechariah, and Mary in the New Testament are good examples of recognizing the Lordship of God in our lives. And here they are, many hardships and struggles after. They find themselves in the place where everything is started, the place where they should have stayed and remained before a God that is slow to anger and faithful in love. They are confessing their sins, recounting and acknowledging God's lordship and mission to bless all nations with his glorious name. It's also worth to mention that this confession was made as a community and in unity. They saw themselves as members of a community and understood that the sin needs to be addressed and acknowledged as a community and as a nation. They are here confessing their sins and their iniquities of their parents and there was no room to say, you know what? I wasn't born when that happened. I wasn't even there. It wasn't me. 
An excellent example to illustrate this story is back in Joshua 7 when Achan disobeyed the Lord. The result of his disobedience was brought over the entire nation and not only over him and his family. And we observe a similar posture in Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. They understood as leaders that the current sinful and broken realities were the result of past doing and sinful ways of living. And they humbly acknowledged it and included themselves as wrongdoers. Our church has a long history of missions. This is how this church was planted in the 1900s with the mission of making Jesus Christ known in Oak Park and around the world. The fact that we still here until this day has to do from the beginning to this moment with the sovereign absolute truth that is God, the one who is keeping us here and he wants to use us. As we humbly acknowledge and recount the name of the Lord and what he has done, we also need to be confronted with our own brokenness and wrongdoings. We claim to trust God, to believe in his sovereign power, provision, and will for our lives. But the reality is that if we take an honest look into our lives, we might find ourselves trusting more in our own plans, self-righteousness, and knowledge to guide our lives more than what we trust God. God called the church and each and every member to accomplish to complete and absolute surrender before him and to be the salt and the light of this world for his glory. And to bless this world and not our own individual, limited, futile, and broken worlds. Israel forgot why they were called and chosen and they become prideful and they wanted to become an end on themselves. They trusted more their own impulses that God's sovereign and loving character in calling in their lives. They trusted more the civil kingdom and their early kings than the sovereign king and his eternal kingdom. When we exist here as a church with a purpose. And every member has been called to be an active participator in his mission. Where are you being the salt and the light today? How are you exercising your calling to share the gospel with those that don't know Christ? And for those of you that are considering vocational mission, I will say this with a lot of humility. You are not going to live there, whatever God is calling you, where you're not living here. And that is also true for each member in our communities. Let me ask you another question. How much time do you spend with non-Christians? Or how many meaningful relationships do you have with non-believers? What are you being the salt and the light? Let's not forget what we were called. Why do we exist? And what are we doing here? It requires an amazing strength to walk humbly before the Lord and to keep our eyes set on eternity as we walk as exiles on this world. We are exiles with a purpose. Humility is a necessary and most needed market in the mission of the healing and restoration of the world. When we humbly recount and acknowledge who God is and what he has done, we do it to remember that when we are faithful and broken, he was faithful and perfect. That he is greater than our sin and our shortfalls, and that our journey doesn't end on this earth. But as we walk on this earth, we have been given purpose. The second observation I would like to make is in relationship to worship. We Christians claim to worship the true living God that makes, and that makes him distinct from other deities. But when we do that, we need to be careful that we are actually worshiping and honoring the God who reveals himself through scripture and not a constructed idea about him that comes from us. I mentioned this because through this prayer in Nehemiah, there is an act of worship that is taking place right there in that moment. 
and in relationship to uh, worship, James Sawyer in his book, Resurrecting the Trinity, says, while we might claim to truly worship God, the diversity of understandings about God, even among Christians, argues that we don't worship in truth. We project our worship, our, our worship and images that we call God, but which are, in fact, created out of our own brokenness. We simply do not apprehend God as he is in himself, or even as he has revealed himself to us. Instead, operating out of our finite, fallen, and sinful understandings, we have inadequate concepts about God at best, and at worst, patently untrue ones. As professing Christians, he adds, we might claim our conceptions of God are biblical, but in truth, we all tend to create a deity by patching together selected pieces of biblical truth with idolatrous results because these pieces fail to reflect fully or properly God's reveal triune nature. We do, to a lesser degree, what Irenaeus, the second century missionary of Lyons, accused the heretical Gnostic teachers of doing, the theological equivalent of taking apart a beautiful mosaic of the king and reassembling it in the likeness of a fox and claiming that it was the same as the original because all the pieces were still there. We need to be aligned with God and what he says about himself in the scripture because we become that that we believe. We become that that we worship. In other words, we resemble the image of the one that we worship. If we truly believe and acknowledge and humility and thanksgiving the lordship of God in our lives, that should be reflected in the way that we conduct and respond to our realities and challenge of our local and global context around the world, but also among ourselves and our worship to the Lord. Anything different, it is probably a version of God, but it's not God. How do we come before God? How does our worship look like? Does worship take place in a specific day during the week only, or is something that we're cultivating as a lifestyle? Do we approach the Lord as consumers, or do we approach, or do we come before Him as worshipers? Worshipers in spirit and truth, but He's looking. The difference between these two is our posture. Number three, humility appeals to God's covenantal love, but pride leads to hate and destruction. That's what we observe in verses 38 to 38, 32 to 38, sorry. The prayer takes an interesting turn in verse 32 when it transitions from acknowledging the wrongdoings and past guilt to present reality where they appeal for forgiveness and deliverance. Look what verse 32 says. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. They approach the Lord as our God and appeal to his character as they recounted their own faithfulness and wicked ways and how he has shown himself to be righteous, faithful, and loving. They remember that they steal God's people and that his covenantal love is bigger than their pride and wicked ways. They seem to recall a promise that was made to Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, says, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. This prayer in Nehemiah, this prayer of confession is more than a summary of past events and, and rather tells the story of a broken promise and faithless nation with a covenant maker and faithful God. The Lord's spirit of humility acted in love and mercy against the prideful lifestyle and self-governing hearts of these people. We find a similar element on this prayer in Acts 7 with Stephen's speech. The difference was marked by the way that that was received. 
Israel with Israel and Nehemiah acted humbly by opening their hearts and experiencing restoration. But the elders, the scribes, and the council that we read in Acts 7 covered their ears, stoned Stephen, and murdered him. In the context of Nehemiah, the people recognized that God's judgment had been just and necessary and that they deserved to be in that situation because their fathers and their leaders did not obey God. In the context of Acts 7, the leaders acted with pride and rage and killed an innocent man. Humility led us to appeal to God's covenantal love and pride led us to cover our ears and into destruction. In, in one, we, become, we come as beggars, and in the other one, we come as demanders. If we pay close attention to the prayer declaration through the entire chapter of Nehemiah, you will notice that the audible voice of God is not responding to their prayer. But there is a, faith, a beautiful picture of faith when they receive the word of God in faith by listening to the scripture and recounting themselves, recommitting themselves, excuse me, before the Lord in faith. They are believing in God's restorative, restorative and loving character. This also gives us an idea of a committed nation repenting and walking away from their sinful and prideful attitudes, letting themselves to be led through exile with a restored and humble heart towards the awaited city where they will no longer be captives nor exiles. And for our definition, we can say that humility is where we lower ourselves before the throne and willingly recognize the lordship of God over our lives. And as a result, we experience out of our brokenness, God's humble, faithful, compassion, and covenantal love. Humility brings life, transformation, revitalizes the soul, and moves us into love. Pride leads us into an insulated state of darkness and destruction. Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you walking humbly before you, God? Humility is also foundational in our relationship with God and therefore with others. Humility, humility corrects our false belief that it was born in the Garden of Eden, that we can be equal, better like God. And pride moves us to pursue our own earthly and futile kingdoms. Humility, on the other hand, transforms our desires and places where we can fully see ourselves for who we are and where we can, and where we can see God for he who truly is. It is there in that place where we receive and experience God's grace and covenantal love in a posture of humility as humble servants. In verse 36, we observe Israel's current condition. They were slaves in their own country, in their own land. And as exiles in this world, walking on the path into a new creation, we believers need to be careful that pride won't turn us into captives in our own journey to the awaited city. If we don't act as the salt and the light that we've been called to live with humility, our nation, this nation, can become another Europe. And we are already seeing glimpses of that. The phrase, those who cannot remember their past are condemned to repeat it, seems to be applicable today in our realities. And this is not new information to you. But sometimes we need to preach to ourselves what we heard or knew already. Last year, I was asked by a beautiful member of our community about the vision for our reach. And among many things I mentioned with a lot of passion about our calling to go out, invest in our communities, disciple, and, and, and have that sense of presence here and to what this person responded. Manfred, we have, we have heard that before. And I told to myself, if we keep hearing the same message, it's probably because we're not, or because we haven't actively responded with our lives to that, out of that message. One thing is to know God, and the, another thing is to know, one thing is to know about God, and the other thing is to know God, to know him. He wants to be known and worshiped here globally, 
and locally. And any efforts into God's final mission, whether we recruit, train, and send missionaries locally or globally, or through our local and global partners' efforts and through our own individual lives, whatever he has places, is to bring him glory. And to do that, we need to be humble. Pretty much, he plays the beat and we dance. In response to that covenantal love in Zechariah 9, 9, foretells the coming of a Messiah King, a King that will be humble. Jesus Christ is the highest and most evident example of humility. He was gentle and meek. The word humble in this passage of Zechariah means someone below or close to the floor surface, someone that is down to earth. In Philippians 2, chapter 2, we see a description of Jesus' servant heart and his messianic kingdom that led him into full obedience to respond to the Father's will, to empty himself in Gethsemane and his last act of humble submission in the cross before he was highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, while on earth, displayed the glory, majesty, and each attribute of God. When we see Jesus, when we read Jesus, we see the Father. And that's why we can affirm that God is a humble God. Calvary Memorial, we are not better than others, but a lot has been given and entrusted to us. Biblical knowledge and a strategic location, the calling to make Jesus Christ known in Oak Park and around the world. We're also privileged not only to be recipients, but have been given a calling to be active participators in the gospel for more than 100 years in a very diverse community with a diverse and beautiful church. What is your obedient response to this reality? Here in the West, there is a lot that we can learn from the East. And we need to recommit ourselves in humility before the Lord as, because as much as we, we can offer in words of Paul Warwick, we can no longer present ourselves as the ones holding all the answers to the world. But we can learn from our brothers and sisters, members like us, believers from the global church in other parts of the world. We can learn how to carry our crosses daily. From those in the poorest places in the world, we can learn how to find our identity in Jesus instead of our possessions and accomplishments. We can learn from brothers and sisters in the Middle East how to remain faithful under evil regimes and Islam and how to love the oppressor. We can learn from our partners and local brothers and sisters of color what does it mean to have the dividing walls broken down and become a new creation and not remain captives in this futile and broken world. Calvary, we are ready to respond in humility to the challenge of Micah 6 said in our daily lives and context. Imagine for a moment that as members of the global church, we receive a newspaper that we subscribe it to a weekly uh, newspaper, and you get that newspaper each Sunday. And in today's edition, you read the great letterhead in front of the page that says, Humble servants wanted, the awesome, faithful, everlasting, loving God, creator of the universe, is looking for humble servants to reach the world with the gospel and for his glory to be displayed as he calls his people to his dwelling place. It's a long title, I know. How would you respond to that challenge? God is looking for humble servants to express his love and bring the gospel to the world. If that would have been indeed the header of a title of a book, how would you have responded? Would you have responded interest, interested and willing to his goal and his mission for your life, even if that would have meant for you to live the life that you have in a different way? How would you have responded to this calling? Would you have, have, yes, have, yes? Would you have said yes at the cost of knowing that you will become the footnote of the last page of the book of the story of the gospel? 
or the nameless servant like the one in Genesis 24, whose heart was to do the will of the Lord, his Lord, and to honor God with all his heart. Let me tell you something. When you believe the gospel, when you say yes to Christ, when you consider the gospel and all its implications, you're saying yes to all this. And for a reason that only God knows, he keeps on entrusting and using broken people to be the vehicles and in scattered ambassadors to share the gospel with the world. But he's looking for faithful and humble servants. The prideful and the arrogant he opposes, but he gives grace to the humble. Micah 6 said it's relevant today and crucial as it was for God's people when it was written. His calling is an invitation for us to live a balanced life by being just, love and mercy, practicing kindness and compassion, and walking humbly with the Lord putting our, 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 aside our own sense of importance and self-righteousness, not considering ourselves better and superior than others. In this description of the markers of the global church, God is the one who determines and defines each and every marker and how we should conduct and navigate our life on this earth as we walk to the new creation, to the awaited city. As exiles on this earth, we've been reminded this morning that humility starts with a repentant heart, that leads to acknowledge God's lordship in our lives where we can appeal to his covenantal and everlasting love. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, we recognize our brokenness, our pride, our arrogance, or self-reliance, self-righteousness. We recognize that humility doesn't come easy in our lives, Lord. But when we look at you and what, the way that you revealed yourself through Scripture, Lord, we cannot help but just be in a place where we are confronted Lord, with our pride. Lord, I pray personally, Lord, just to see a revival, to see a complete community being transformed here in part by the power of the gospel, Lord. But sometimes I walk as if I don't believe that, Lord. Forgive me. I pray for the church today, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are watching this, Lord, that they can turn to you, Lord, just in self-reflection, Lord, in how they're living their lives. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that we've been given a purpose on this earth. Thank you for giving us hope, Lord, that if we trust you, Lord, you're going to lead us as we continue walking towards the new creation, Father. Father, we love you. We need you. We know we're simple people, Lord, but you still want to use us, Lord, to fulfill your mission. Increase our faith and give us the courage in today's world, Lord, to act upon and in response to the gospel that has been given to us. As members of the global church, Lord, we ask you for unity, for love, kindness, 
before you every day of our lives, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.